One, two, one, two, three, four. Du jour means hello there and welcome to Josie and the Podcasts, a six-part limited podcast series all about the 2001 cult classic Josie and the Pussycats, hosted by me, best-selling author, journalist and screenwriter Maria Lewis. And produced by me, film critic and podcaster Blake Howard, behind shows like One Heat Minute, All the President's Minutes, Increm Advice and Miami Nice. Over the past four episodes, we've taken you from Josie and the Pussycats Origins as an Archie Comics spin-off property and its intersection with the civil rights movement to its development in Hollywood at Universal with writers and directors Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont and production as it gets underway in Vancouver, Canada with the new Pussycats, Rachel Lee Cook as Josie, Tara Reid as Melody and Rosario Dawson as Valerie. And on our last episode, Soundtrack, we explored all the music of the movie, song for song, with people who made the best debut album from a band that never actually existed. The Voice, Josie, Kay Hanley, Biff Naked, and the late, great Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne. We also have done a load of bonus episodes. Maria's voice is evidence of that on how Archie broke the comics code. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Neither do I. I just sound like I'm emotionally and physically so down a well. Tired. The fashion of the film, du jour, they get their own whole bonus episode. The original singing voice of Josie, Diddy Gibson. So if you're joining us late, don't even sweat it because you can hit pause right now, go back, listen to all those episodes, and then you've got some content to get back to where we are. Josie in the podcast. And now that you're here, now that you've come this far with us on Josie and the Podcasts, welcome to the episode all about the film's release. And in short, it didn't go so well. Excellent work, Fiona. These kids will never know what hit them. And neither will you. I'm sorry, what was that? Huh? What? You just said something. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. So Deb and Harry finish shooting, Kenny, Babyface Edmonds has the soundtrack ready to go, and Josie and the Pussycats goes into post-production. It's actually the first movie ever to colour digitally. The Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, also colour digitally, but that was to take colour out. If Josie and the Pussycats ever gets a Blu-ray release, Deb and Harry said they would leap at the opportunity to do some colour corrections of their own now that the process is much more solid. Anyway, Josie and the Pussycats test screenings had been cancelled, so Universal were uncertain about how it would play with an audience. The studio wasn't feeling strong about their big blockbuster, Josie and the Pussycats movie, that's supposed to be dropping the same theatrical gear as just a few films you may have heard of, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Oof. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> Shrek, <laughs> The Mummy Returns, Eyebrows. Jurassic Park 3, and Pearl Harbor. Wow. And unlike those movies, Josie and the Pussycats stars were all women, or in Hollywood terms, Ow. it gets slated with a US spring release, which also was not a great sign. Hi, I'm Garth Franklin from Dark Horizons. Uh, Dark Horizons has basically existed since uh, 1997. It's a website that does movie news and industry news and gossip and so forth. We were one of the uh, sort of first movie industry websites that it was doing stuff online. Most of the time, at the time, in the late 90s, uh, most things were trade papers like your Varieties and Hollywood Reporters, which is still around. Uh, but very, very few online. Uh, and one was an, one called Ain't It Cool, which sort of began, I guess, the process of this sort of stuff. And then Dark Horizons launched within a few months of that. We have been doing it for 20 years, but there's not many others too. 
If you're any kind of movie buff, you know Dark Horizons. It's an institution at this point and back in 2001, Garth covered the whole campaign. Uh, the main thing with Josie was that it was one of these early April releases. Now, this was a time, uh, at the time, many, the summer was the time of the big movie. So June, July, Memorial Day was usually the start. And then two years before that, The Mummy came out and changed everything. You know, that made early May the go-to time to start the real blockbusters. So April, which had become, which was a bit of a nothing month, had become more of a dumping ground even than it had been before. And so if a film came out in April, it was usually seen as something, ooh, we're, we're not sure this might work, but it could, but we're going to be cautious with this one. We're not entirely sure. So when that film came out, it was done, it was MGM, if I remember right. But there was still a morsel of hope because of that little thing we mentioned a few episodes ago. Girl power. Excuse me. This is about, this is about girl power. This is not about picking up guys. This is about girl power. So in August 2000, just over six months before Josie and the Pussycats came out, two other female-centric films had been released in cinemas. Coyote Ugly and Bring It On. They both became big hits. Bring It On more so than Coyote Ugly, but still. Bring It On had a legit tiny budget of 11 mil and grossed nearly 100 million, going on to become a classic classic of the genre. Whereas Coyote Ugly's budget was a little closer to Josie's, 45 mil, and grossed 113 million worldwide, going on to become a cult classic and featuring one of Blake's favourite cameos of all time. Michael Bay as a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> the look of panic on your eyes that people can't see. This is all before they hit home entertainment, by the way, which is still a lucrative market back then in the age of blockbuster and so on. Even a movie that breaks even at the box office or mildly disappoints can make its budget back in home entertainment. The other release of Significance came out just a few months after Cody Ugly and Bring It On. That film is McGee's Charlie's Angels and that drops in November 2000. Charlie's Angels is a big hit, baby. And on top of giving us Sam Rockwell dancing to Pharaoh fucking Monch and a damn thing changed, it almost triples its $93 million budget and becomes a phenomenon, spawning a hit tie-in song from Destiny's Child and parodies in the likes of Scary Movie 2, which comes out the following year. It's even so successful, Josie and the Pussycats jokes about it with a fake headline from Variety popping up during the Pussycats' success montage as Pretend to be Nice hits number one. It reads Barrymore, Diaz and Lou to play Pussycats in Josie movie. All three of those movies star women, are targeted at women, have engaging music and are aesthetically glossy. None of them reviewed well either, but were all able to go on to become box office successes. Unfortunately, Josie and the Pussycats wouldn't be that. Here's Kay Hanley, who heard the word early from co-writer, co-director Harry Elfont. It was in the theatre and 
I remember I had spoken to Harry like the week before and a parent and I was just like, Oh my God, it's so exciting. And, and, um, and I remember him not sounding that excited. And I was like, hm, that's weird. And, um, apparently he had got, had like some sort of data from some company that said that it wasn't going to open well or something like that at the box office, which like to me, like I didn't know anything about that stuff. I have to tell you guys, I was so crazy naive for someone who had like been in a band for like my entire, for like a decade up to that point, traveled the world, been in the music business, been all around the entertainment business. I was still just like a very naive you know, girl from Boston who, you know, just a townie. So, but I, but in, in later, in, in times that came later, like seeing it, you know, on, you know, my mom had like the, the video cassette of it. And it's just like seeing my voice come out of Rachel's mouth is just something that I still can't get over. It's just amazing. Josie and the Pussycats had to suck up that April 11 release date and head out into the world. It had the cover of Entertainment Weekly, heralding the arrival of the spring slate of movies with Rachel Lee Cook, Tara Reid and Rosario Dawson looking like absolute fucking rock stars as Josie, Melody and Valerie on the preview issue. The premiere happened in Hollywood, of course, and those red carpet photos are a time capsule oh to be gosh. treasured. Wonderful. There's Alan Cumming in a powder blue blazer with a pre-Tiger King eyebrow <laughs> ring. <laughs> Teen Queen Amanda Bynes was there in an all-pink leopard print dress with Frankie Muniz. I think the 90s literally are those four words, Amanda Bynes <laughs> and Frankie Muniz. When you say that, you instantly transport back to the 90s. It Boy Jesse Bradford was there, along with basically the entire cast of fellow Universal movie American Pie, like The Shermanator, Chris Owen, Shannon Elizabeth, Dawson's Creek star, Kerr Smith was there, and Giles, bloody Giles, Anthony Head took his two daughters, and, and speaking of celebrity dads doing their duty, Keith Sutherland was also there with his daughters decked out in pussycat ears. It was a big night for Hollywood dads doing their part. Previously on 24. <laughs> <laughs> Previously on 24. Come on, come on. <laughs> it was a peak 2000s millennia celebration, but according to Deb and Harry, they knew that Josie and the Pussycats had flopped from the moment it hit theatres. And that little, oh my God, you hear in there? That's Rachel. Opening weekend. Like an hour after it opened. <laughs> I mean, I somebody it wasn't used tracking the phrase, well either. It didn't track well. It didn't test well. No. Um, and, and luckily we kind of, we scrapped the first test screening because there's some storm. Remember we were supposed to go to San Diego? We were supposed to take the, tra take the train? Something yes. was going on when we canceled it. We were like, we're not going down there. I think there were power outages. And I think they were talking about flying us down. Right. And it was like, we were going to die if we went to this test screening. Like, it was basically like getting on like the fucking Buddy Holly plane. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> to like go to San Diego that, that too. That was like, we have to go to this test screening. I'm like, and die? <laughs> and thankfully they canceled it at the last minute. And then, so the studio never saw the movie with an audience. We then just screened it first. Stacey Snyder was the head of the studio at the time. She just saw it kind of just without an audience. Which may or may not have been better. I'm still not sure, but uh, but she she kind of knew what it was because she sent us before we started the movie. She sent us a copy of Putney Slope to look at. Like she knew we were making a real satire. Um, and then it was opening weekend. I remember there was some call. Somebody used the phrase. It's yeah, it's DLA. And that was a bit of a gut punch. 
I think I went to a theater in the Beverly Center. That's how long ago. There was movie theaters in the Beverly Center. Yeah. And there were like five people in the theater. Like, I peeked my head and I was like, okay. This is what we're dealing with. And our previous experience, Canada, the wait, which didn't do incredibly well, but that Friday night, theaters were, I mean, people were sitting in the aisles. It was so packed. And they cheer at the end of the movie. So it was, it was, it was, it was, it was like, it was like a funeral. Deb's analogy is not wrong, as the box office numbers were grim. It opened at number six during its week of release, making just four million. And to put that in context, here's Garth Franklin from Dark Horizons again. Josie and the Pussycats didn't go that well at the box office, shall we say? Um, this was a movie that cost considerably more than it probably should have for what it was. Uh, the budgets estimates have varied between different, you know, depending on your sources. But it's a figure between 22 and 39 million at the time. Now, most say it's 39 million, but that's there's some of the saying was a bit cheaper than that. For a movie like that, it needs to make about 70 to 80 million to be a hit. It made 14, which is not good. Um, now, <laughs> to put a, a sort of comparison, that's not too bad. There are worse films that have come out since and that, around that time and later that have been much worse than that. Um, Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg came out the following year that cost um, extremely exorbitant like 57, 58 million to make and it made I think it was about 1920 not much more than Josie did so it's not unheard of but they obviously were trying for something like a Spice World they wanted uh, to do a movie that cost about 20, 25 million that movie made 150 million worldwide they knew they don't have the kind of cash of the Spice Girls but they wanted something like a 70 and 80 if they're going to spend that much on that kind of film and they just didn't get it. The other thing they didn't get were good reviews or heck, even kind ones, to be honest. I'm going to make Blake read these out loud because I don't like mean things. And as you're listening, <laughs> you may pick up a few underlying themes here. Let's start with the nicest, which was a half star review from legendary critic Roger Ebert. Take it away, Blake. Oh, Roger, this is a bad take. Josie and the Pussycats are not dumber than the Spice Girls, but they're as dumb as the Spice Girls, which is dumb enough. This one's from Entertainment Weekly, and sorry for making you read this, Blake. I'm going to do it in a British accent. Just oh, why? It's <laughs> the about- most American publication. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm going to do a Jamaican accent. Buckshot, buckshot, buckshot. In their junior Playboy Kitty years, the Pussycats have a little more grip <laughs> as characters than they did as the 70s feline rockers spun from the Archie comics. That's the film's principal drawback. Sorry, but Rachel Lee Cook is not the new Cameron Diaz. Cook has a withdrawn mannequin glumness that makes it look as if she's had cosmetic surgery directly on her gene pool. Fucking hell. I know, it's really fucking Ouch. Bad. Josie and the Pussycats is hardly a good movie, but it's as flashy in postmodern hard sell as leopard skin spandex tank top. Could Josie be the new Britney? Could the film be the new Bring It On? Or at the very least, it's the new and improved Coyote Ugly. Call it Coyote Pretty. Yeah, the thing about that too, just like to touch on it for a second, is I don't think there was ever a point where Rachel Lee Cook was ever the new Cameron Diaz. No. Especially when Cameron Diaz was the new Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz was being Cameron Diaz when this film was out. So stupid. Anyway, and it's also some, there's some, look, I'm not going to get into it. I don't want to criticise other people's criticism, but (laughs) some dodgy writing in there. Like to quote an earlier section of this podcast, EL. This is from the Village Voice under the headline Kittens Rule, Boys Drool. And it was actually a positive combo review of both the soundtrack and the movie, but somehow it gets so much worse. 
Josie and the Pussycats gets called the best album that you're going to hear all year, but it does so in a very unique way. Like, Oh, dear God. <laughs> and Kay's vocals recorded properly for the first time, big budget, big time producer and engineer, are the megaton bomb. One, two, or three cuts, and she ends with a yow, just like those early Muffs things. Funny, she had a baby right before the soundtrack gig. Maybe putting on some weight gave her the extra vocal heft? What the? That's what latter-day Debbie Harry swears by. Anyway, fat equals P-H-A-T or something. Look, I had to go through legitimately, like, a le- no, I don't want to say a hundred of these, but I went through dozens and dozens of these reviews, picking, like, the ones that were sort of most symbolic of um, the kind of messaging around the film and how it was received and stuff. Uh, so. These these reviews aren't unique and gender and sexuality comes into it, as you can hear, but the reviews from female critics weren't positive either. I looked into that because I was just curious to see whether there was a split between the way male reviewers received the film compared to females and pretty much across the board it was evenly, we hate it. And just to stay on that last one for a moment from the Village Voice, Kay Hanley actually remembers it and she remembers it pretty fondly, which is was surprising to me. Like, Letters to Cleo was never very well reviewed during that time. Like, we didn't get, we were not critical darlings by any stretch. And I remember the first glowing review I I ever got as, like, a a singer was in the Village Voice. I forget the guy's name. He reviewed Josie and the Pussycats. And he's like, I love hearing Kay Hanley like this. It sounds like she just realized that someone's going to pay her. (laughs) And it was like... It was like, it's so funny. It was the first time I ever got like really paid for singing. (laughs) I hadn't put the two and two, but here, here's why it really ended up being, oh my God, you guys, I could seriously talk about this. I don't even know where to start. Like there's so much I want to say about this project, but, um, I, after we did the stuff with Babyface, it was just supposed to be the music for the movie. And then that was it. And so came back to Boston, did a, started doing our thing. Letters to Cleo broke up soon thereafter. And um, we got another call from somebody. I guess Deb and Harry decided, like, we want to make a soundtrack. And it was like, oh, that's amazing. So we decided to do it in Boston with the guy, with Adam Fussinger producing so as you well, I'm sure you know all the trivia. It's like Babyface produced half of it and Adam produced the other half. And um, and then we used Mike Deneen, who had uh, in his studio Q Division, which is where Letters to Cleo had made all of our records. And God, and Mike died last summer, but he, you know, the rest of the record would just not have been what it is without his input. And we. It was like the idea that I could sing the way I sang like someone who was not afraid of anything. And the reason for that is, is because I don't know what the shift was for me, but the fact that it wasn't a Letters to Cleo record, that it was, I was singing like in character that it wasn't me, like my ego wasn't attached to it in any way. And I was just like, fuck it. Like I just, it went, I felt, I've never felt so free in my life. 
singing. And I think that really comes across, especially on the stuff that Adam did. Adam and Mike Janine did. It was like, I, I've never sung like that in my life. And I don't know if I ever will again. It was just magic. Kay's voice was magic. The soundtrack was magic. And for me at the time, the movie was magic too. It's grown even more magical to me over the years, to be honest. Yet, Josie and the Pussycats was not liked by critics, as we heard through Blake's incredible vocal performance. And it. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's in a British accent for some reason, <laughs> which, by the way, <laughs> disappears towards the end. You start at like, hello, Gav, and by the end of it, you're like, I'm Russell Crowe. Because I, I just got so baffled by some of the like overtly insulting personal attacks that are laced with all of the criticism. But this was also the era of like, really nasty reviews like people made or broke their careers based on how barbed their um I don't even necessarily want to say commentary how barbed their criticism could be but the thing is like it wasn't just critics who didn't like this movie it wasn't seen by audiences in the US and internationally it didn't even get a chance here's Garth yeah it was released uh by Universal domestically and then MGM overseas and I the thing I remember with that one was there's a bit of confusion between the two uh, it was a film that came out with not as much publicity as it should have for a lot, that film that size. Uh, there were some photos and some trailers and so forth that were released, but I, this is one of those movies where they really could have done more with the marketing, had the music videos out and all that kind of stuff, and they really didn't exploit it as much as they should have. Um, consequently, it, it, the failure wasn't that unexpected, sadly. But no, they played, played it theatrically here, and... It was one of those ones where I went on the opening week and it was just already shoved aside to the smaller cinema. Um, and so they didn't have much faith in it internationally to play. Uh, certainly almost all the box office came from domestic. It's The international's not even reported on at some point. <laughs> uh, the narrative was that the film, it was a bit of a dud, but music sort of films at that time weren't seen as the big kind of juggernauts they can be at the moment. So something like, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody that came out last year was is turned what is a music biopic, which is normally a, a genre that doesn't really make much money anyway, into an event programming. Um, that's one of the first times it's really been done. Uh, there's beyond the, you know, the odd musical or something like Grease, which breaks through or whatever with the generations. Um, but yeah, no, it just sort of came and went. There wasn't really much talk to it. It isn't like... Because I guess it was an old property at the time that hadn't been exploited, like Archie the Archie and all that sort of stuff, people were sort of aware of those characters, but they certainly weren't really well known outside the States. So there wasn't a big push of like, this is characters that we can be familiar with and sell. It's a very difficult thing to sell that movie. Josie and the Podcats will be right back after this message from our sponsors. If you haven't heard of House of Dizzy, you may have been living under a rock. The brainchild of Indigenous Australian jewellery designer and queen of bling, Christy Dickinson, it's the fierce, inclusive and politically minded ear candy you need in your life. I've been wearing House of Dizzy jewellery for literally years and my favourite pair of earrings that I own are from Christy. It's a pair of personalised hoops that say Maria in the middle and I also have a pair from her that say Pussy Power as well. Um, But you really (laughs) got to choose the occasions on when you wear those. So check out houseofdizzy.com for all the complete looks. That's H-A-U-S of Dizzy, D-I-Z-Z-Y dot com and follow her on Instagram at House of Dizzy. The link is in our show notes. Colin Farrell may not be able to remember 2006, but Katie Walsh and I surely can. Coming this May, Katie Walsh and I will be coming with a brand new podcast for One Hitman Productions called Miami Nice, where once a week... 
we stir up a mojito or maybe a dirty mojito, maybe a G&T, and we have a drink and talk about all things Michael Mann's 2006 Miami Vice. Some weeks we'll have guests, most weeks we won't. There's also a video podcast as well. So every single week you can either watch the show or listen along, and we're just here to have fun, have a drink, come along. Are you a fiend for mojitos? I know the place. Josie and the Pussycats was marketed at the wrong demo, which is a thing that comes up over and over again in the analysis about why the movie failed in 2001, but has succeeded in the intervening years. It was too old for an audience that was too young or too young for an audience that was too old, an MTV movie when they needed a Nickelodeon one and vice versa. It's a moot point now. One of the consistent things in the reviews and in audience feedback was a distaste for the way the movie constantly broke the fourth wall. It was considered smug and went over a lot of people's heads. Our studies have shown that bands that have the word and in the title sell twice as many records as those that don't. But what about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or the Backstreet Yes, Boys? yes, well, if you want to split hairs, yes, of course, obviously, yes, yes. But I... Come on. I mean, would you be more interested in a band called simply The Pussycats? Or are you more likely to buy a CD or read a comic or watch a cartoon or go and see a movie about a trio of luscious ladies called Juicy and The Pussycats? Mm. You know, lines like that, which have aged really well and point to the clever, layered nature of the screenwriting. Another frequent criticism was the subliminal messaging and all the meta jokes about the state of the music industry, things that we love now and have made the movie a cult classic. Yet despite the official word from critics on that specific point, and even the few people who saw the movie, there are a lot of folks in show business and the music industry who connected with that message, including Bono. Bono? Bono, baby! <laughs> We've reached the Bono segment. It could have been a bonus Bono, but no, no, no. It's gonna be Bono. <laughs> Here's Harry and Deb talking about someone who definitely got it. Was it? You did. Um, <laughs> a couple that people did. Yes. Um, uh, the, fam- the most famous one, because again, the movie tanked and it felt like, oh geez, nobody got it. And the reviews, some of the reviews were really mean and didn't get it. Um, a couple of reviewers got it, but the, the first time we heard of somebody getting it was when you went to that U2 show. Yeah, I went to see U2 um, and a friend of mine is friendly with Bono and got us all backstage. And I don't know how it even came up or I was introduced as that person. He's like, I love that movie. I totally got it. He, he knew exactly, I don't think I knew that. He knew exactly what we were saying and he was like he totally got the satire, he totally felt it. And I was like, Oh okay. Yeah, you said at the time you said he said people were gonna see it and finally understand what was going on in the music business. <laughs> Um, That's so cool. And uh, so, it, so for like a couple of years, all we had was, well, at least Bono got it. <laughs> that was our only solace. It's true. Look, Bono being into the movie is something you can dine out on for life. Yet there were other folks who declared the movie their one love, mm-hmm, one life, like Biff Naked, who you heard in our soundtrack ep and sung backing vocals on the album. Hello, my name is Biff Naked, and I am on the phone from Toronto, Canada. When I finally saw it, it was long out of the theater, to be honest with you. Uh, I didn't have an opportunity to see it in the theater. But uh, again, you know, uh, Rosario Dawson uh, is just so cute and sweet. And, um, 
even Rachel, but Tara stole the show for me. I was uh, I was a big fan, you know, and I still am. I think that um, she is a uh, she, she's a lovely girl, and um, it, it was just a it was a thrill, and it's a great story. She's almost like very Goldie Hawn esque. I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I love it to this day. Um, no, you know, it was such a. I mean, it was such a cute story. Obviously, Josie and the Pussycats is like the cutest story, uh, you know, of a girl band, basically. And uh, you know, coming up in uh, the music scene in the Pacific Northwest where I lived, you know, it was all about the riot girls. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I kind of self-identified as a. Uh, a real do-it-yourself, you know, feminist, you know, tough chick. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Josie and the Pussycats was like the first time really, um, you know, girls got to see that kind of representation. Um, and even with even with Buffy, you know, like uh, that's a whole other experience altogether. And um, again, such a great experience, you know, um, to be, uh, not typecast, but I, I love working on things that have anything to do with uh, empowering uh, the identity of the characters. You know, these these characters are are very self assured, self aware females, and especially at that time in my life, it was really important to me. So yes, Bono, Biff, and then Bennett. Alana Bennett, screenwriter on Roswell, New Mexico, who was in that perfect age bracket and saw the Josie and the Pussycats movie when she was 10 and immediately fell in love. It was kind of at the same time as Spice Girl stuff and it was kind of peak girl power, I think. Um, So I think that was kind of, uh, and I think I saw it around the same time I saw uh, the Charlie's Angels movie uh, from that era. So it was kind of, I I mean, I feel very lucky in having kind of come of age right as those movies of like um, formidable women were uh, kind of around. So, yeah, I think it, but it's also like, you know, you do rewatch it and you appreciate that even more um, and you see it for the rarity that it is. (laughs) I think it's because it is like on rewatch, like and rewatch and rewatch, it's, it's so layered and brilliant in a way that I don't think was acknowledged at the time. I think people watched it at the time and were like, what the what, what is happening? But I think like it is like every line is hilarious. It has a such an interesting point of view and there's not like, there's not another movie like it. And I think that's just built for that cult status. And it's like the, the soundtrack was incredible. Like I still, that was my introduction. Um, that and 10 Things They Hate About You were my introduction to Letters to Cleo, which is one of my favorite bands of all time. And I still, I literally still listen to the Josie and the Pussycats album as if it were, was just a regular released album. I remember begging my mom to buy it for me. Um, and like Rachel Lee Cook is so good. And like every person, like all of the elements come together so perfectly. But you know, it's an odd movie. So I see why it wasn't necessarily, why people didn't necessarily get it at the time. But I think that it's a crime that that movie was not, wildly successful at the time because but you can see with the lasting power that um its legacy has made up for that Josie and the Pussycats was a flop yes but it was one of many big flops that year Glitter and Freddie Got Fingered also came out in 2001 but in Glitter's defense the Mariah Carey star vehicle was never going to succeed because it was released September 11 2001 yeah 
In fact, Josie and the Pussycats bombing had a big snowball effect for the rest of a planned Archie Comics cinematic universe, which truly might have been for the best. Here's comic book historian and author of Betty and Veronica, Riverdale's leading ladies, Tim Hanley. Yeah, as much as people seem to love Josie and the Pussycats now, it was a massive bomb, like made back a small portion of its budget. And Archie, the powers that be at Archie at the time, decide we're going to take control of our properties now. They created Archie Comics Entertainment. They brought in uh, some people who were not uh, comics professionals, but like entertainment professionals generally decided we're going to develop our own properties ourselves. One of the big ones was they very quickly sold a Betty and Veronica movie to Miramax. So if you go back and read those statements from the time, you get a lot of glowing words about Betty and Veronica from Harvey Weinstein, which is off-putting these days. Um, that movie never happened, but was a, a big deal for them at the time. And they had, there's an internal memo that you can find online that's like their massive five-year plan. So they wanted like an Archie movie. They wanted a Jughead movie. They had tons of plans that never really came together. That's some big yikes energy right there. But again, it gets so much worse. Um, another big part of it was Riverdale Stars. It would be like an American Idol style talent show to recreate the Archies. And like as a band, but also for like television stuff and like concerts. It was kind of, if you remember S Club 7, from the early 2000s, they were a band, but also a TV show. It's kind of it's the direction they were going. They advertised in the comics for about two years, and it never happened. So, yeah, they tried to take control of everything. Nothing ever came of it. But kind of the seeds of that, you can see now all these years later a little bit with Riverdale and Sabrina and the new Katie Keene show. Yeah, at the time, not super successful for them. On the next episode of Josie and the Podcats, the final episode of Finale! the podcast. Final legacy. It has taken nearly 20 years, but Josie and the Pussycats becomes a cult classic and builds a legacy of female creatives who are hugely influenced by the movie, the music, and three female best friends working together towards a shared dream. And in the meantime, to tide you over until next week, our bonus episode is coming out this Wednesday and it's bonus bossy love. In our final episode legacy next week, one of the gals we're chatting to who was hugely influenced by Josie and the Pussycats movie, so much so that she started a teenage rock band that became globally famous. Well, that gal is Amanda Wilkinson and we're going to be chatting to her about Operator Please, Carving Your Own Path and her new band, Bossy Love. Amanda is awesome. It will be a great primer for that legacy episode, so you've got to tune in. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes and the final bonus episodes. If you like this, it would be jerking if you could chuck us a rating and review to help other people to find it as well. This episode of Josie and the Podcasts was researched, written, and presented by me, Maria Lewis. And produced by me, Blake Howard. Our podcast artwork was done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed. 0310 at gmail.com. And our jerkin theme is courtesy of Bossy Love's Amanda Wilkinson and Edwin Organ. Bossy Love's brand new album, Me Plus You, is out now. And if you know someone who's hearing impaired who would enjoy the show, written versions of every episode, including the bonus apps, are available online 
at graffiti with punctuation. The link is in our show notes. Until next time, who's a rock star? Josie in the podcast.